Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teamwork A Better Way podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined by Spencer Horn, who recently returned from the Magic Kingdom. Spencer, how you doing? <laughs> uh, magical, so uh, and a little sore. <laughs> well, we'll have a conversation about all that, but we've got a magical guest joining us today, Spencer, and I'm super excited to introduce her and bring her on. Uh, recently had a conversation, had the honor of having a conversation with Lisa Morrison. Uh, she she has such an extensive background and experience in helping people realize their potential. And she is joining us today to share her extensive knowledge and expertise on how to improve team performance. Let's let's just go through some of the the credentials here, right? Okay, associate senior lecturer at Newcastle University Business School, MBA recently completed a Harvard Business School qualification in entrepreneurship. And I got to read this stuff because I couldn't memorize it all, Lisa. It's well, so she, long. And she doesn't need that. She's a she's a real life entrepreneur. She'll talk to you all. We, she, we could ask she her about is. that. Accredited NLP master practitioner trainer, ILM accredited professional coach, EMCC master coach and mentor, proud TEDx speaker, and about to embark on a PhD exploring the relationship of self-identity and uh, performance. So, wow, we are so honored to have you, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I can honestly say the honor is absolutely all mine. And I, and I have to say, I'm really showing my age when you read out my credentials like that. Because um, I turned 50 this year, and probably that is a good 30 years worth of collecting of credentials. So it's odd when it's all read out in one go like that. Oh, only well, 50? What? You're that's... the youngest person here on this podcast. That's, that's so, right. And you've got a lot more letters after your name than I do. So congratulations <laughs> to you. <laughs> well, why don't we dive into this topic? Spencer, I know you've got a ton of questions. I've got questions for Lisa, but uh, the title of this session or this episode is the power of potential and i want to ask you about that just a little bit uh, what is this uh about potential and the power of potential and and what is your main focus in that particular area um to be honest i could go off in so many different directions here so please guys i need you to rein me in um, I'm a typical Brit who likes to talk a lot. So I'm going to need you to, to keep me reined in on this subject. Because what is so fascinating about the power of potential is that we've all got a superpower that we don't even know that we have. And it's all living inside of us. And it's all about our identity. It's about how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves in comparison to everybody else and how those views of ourselves actually impact on our potential. And when I work with businesses, how that impacts ultimately on performance. So when we realize that we've got this superpower and we realize that we either use it as a superpower or it's actually our kryptonite, then the minute we get control of that, it's a game changer. It changes everything. That's why I'm so passionate about it. So what in terms of really self awareness and of that identity where does that start i mean why are you, why is this so important that you're talking about this because and in your experience how often are people aware of that that uh, self identity and how it relates to their performance i would say it, it's the second part of that question how often are people aware of it virtually never you know, people don't realize that half the time we don't even realize the impact that our self-talk on, you know, that has on all areas of our lives, personal lives, relationships, professional lives. We have no idea that the words we're using in our head, we don't even realize we're saying them, that directly impacts on how we think, feel and behave. So in general, people don't know that, that it even exists. Um, in terms of where it comes from, well, in the way we develop as children in our formative years, a lot of our personality, a lot of our personality traits, um, you know, a lot of ways in which we end up being in the world are formed when we're very young. 
But what a lot of people don't realize is that identity isn't a fixed state. It's a, it's a work in progress. And we can not fundamentally change who we are. We'll never go against the grain of fundamentally who we are. But we can shape it and we can mould ourselves to become more or less anybody that we want to be. It has to fit and it has to align with our values and what's important to us. Because otherwise, if we're not congruent with those things, we're not authentic and that's really important. But we, most people don't realise that you can really focus in on who you want to be. You can set goals at that level and you can go for it. So our, our words impact our thoughts, but isn't yeah. that also circular, Lisa, that our thoughts impact our words and, and, oh, which, yeah. is, and which is first. And so, and where do you, where do you start to, uh, to, uh, to, to strengthen that cycle or break that cycle? I imagine. You know, sometimes it's just holding the mirror to it. It's just seeing what you're doing is enough to break the cycle. It's a good chicken and egg question. Yes. But if we look at, if we look at, for example, how we feel, if we look at our emotions, our emotions is how we make sense of information that we're presented with at any moment in time. Uh, and those emotions often control or, or, or drive what we think and what we think often drives how we behave. Now, what we know about the science of, of perception, how we view the world, how we take in sensory data and we convert that sensory data, we, we, you know, what we focus on, we, we take in something like 2 million pieces of sensory data per second and our brain can't cope with the abundance of data. So it has to sort it, it deletes some, it distorts some, it generalizes some. And what we let get through those filters, if you like, determines what we focus on. So if we have a belief, for example, that we're not good at something, what's really fascinating about our brains is our brains are designed to prove us right. Imagine that. Imagine that your brain is actively seeking to prove you right all of the time. Now, if you've got a belief about yourself that's not a positive one, your brain's going to be constantly searching for things that it, it's going to try and back up that that belief is right. So when we look at it in that context, what we're doing is when you're saying do, what comes first to our thoughts, you know, what, what, what happens first, you're absolutely right. It's secular because what we think our brains then looking for validation of, and then we're constantly validating it. When we realize we're doing that, we can stop that cycle. We can choose to think something different. And then it is remarkable how we notice other things that go against that original belief. And then that belief system can change. When what you believe changes, what you think changes, how you feel changes. And it is really so much more simple than people realize, but we've got to catch ourselves doing it. We've got to see ourselves in that mirror, if you like, to realize that's what's going on. So I, I just, sorry, Christian, I, I, I just have to share. I just caught myself experiencing this the other day when I rented a car, uh, Lisa said, our brains delete, distort, simplify information. And we're doing that all the time. And, you know, the reticular activated system, it's kind of like the, the Google of, of our brains, although it makes Google look like you're typing with a stone chisel. It's that fast. It's literally sending messages in, uh, or, or deleting them or preventing them. So I rented this van. It was a terrible experience because it had this nanny control on it, Christian and Lisa. I couldn't go past 85 miles an hour without the governor kicking in. That's brilliant for a rental car system. But here's here's what happened. I got this this van that was this really pretty color of of gray. I know that sounds interesting. It was this kind of a, you know, a blue gray. It's very popular. And all of a sudden, I started seeing that color everywhere. And everywhere in the parking lot. I, I was like where did all these gray cars come from? I, I don't think I've ever noticed that many before, but because the car I was driving had that, I now all of a sudden saw it everywhere and it just appeared. That's, that's an example of how our brains all of a sudden let information in that I didn't notice before. I mean, that yeah. just happened this weekend. And I'm like, oh, that's what that is. And it, Cause I, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm like, that just happened to me. Yeah, that's exactly. Now imagine what we're, we're not talking about great cars. No. Imagine, well, imagine we're talking about the fact that you believe 
I don't know that you'll never get a wife. I know you've got a wife. I've met your wife, Spencer. So I'm not certainly not suggesting that that's true. Oh, yeah, we, need to, you... we need to talk about that. We met in, in Cyprus with, uh, with our wife. That was... <laughs> we did. Um, and uh, But imagine you believe you'll never get that job. Or imagine if you believe you're not worthy of something. That imagine promotion, that raise. Absolutely. And imagine, well, that's what we call a self-limiting belief. And that means that just like your van, all you will do will, will notice things in your life or you'll think you're noticing things in your life that backs up that belief. Okay, so I, 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 can this be perversely affected somehow? In other words, I think I deserve a promotion and a raise, but yet somehow I don't see that I don't have what I need to be able to do to attract that? And now that's, that's slightly different because that's taken a bit more of a pragmatic approach. That's being able to go, what, what realistic, what in my reality, or it's that self-awareness and emotional intelligence that we call it, what, what, where, where's that, like that check? What have I actually got in terms of that matches up with that promotion and what's missing? So I would say that's self-awareness and that can be really positive. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if it stops us from even trying, if yeah. it stops us from believing something is possible, then it is impossible. Because, you, you know, you are, what, what's that famous saying? Um, if you believe you can, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. It's so true. You're both and right. we know now, yeah, we know now why in, from a neuroscience perspective that, that that works. That's not just an anecdote. That's true. It's because of the way our brain processes information. So I have to ask a question then. If our brain is wired to prove us right, this you know, it's the evolutionary biology of our brain says, okay, this is my job. My job is to keep you safe and prove you right, as Dr. Paul Jenkins would say. Uh, then, then how do you go about changing that paradigm so that your brain is now trying to prove something else right? Like, okay. So I'm, I think I am X, uh, but I have, and my brain is saying, yes, you are X, you are X, you are X. And here's all the evidence. How do I make that switch and say, you know what? I am Y. And yeah. now my brain is going to, to start to receive those, those kinds of inputs, trying to reinforce that. How does that actually happen? It, it does, is it really, really difficult? Does it take years and years of time or, or. Are there situations where you can make a conscious decision and your brain can start reinforcing this new pattern? Actually, it actually reinforces a new neural pathway is what it does because your, your memory and imagination use the same kind of pathways in your brain. And what actually happens is your brain, it's very different for it to distinguish between the two. Now, when we hear about um, positive affirmations, we, you know, you've, you've probably taught, you've heard about that probably in positive psychology. Some people think that's just for hippies, tree hugging, you know, they think it's very kind of new age, soft stuff. But the reality is the more you tell yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, as you say, um, Christian, a different alternative, I am this, I am this, I am this. That is why positive affirmations work because it's actually creating a new pathway, a new alternative. And if you do that often enough, your brain will it, you, you, your brain will get there, and the thing is that you've also probably heard if you've got to fake it to make it. That's a little bit of where this comes in as well, because just that you you could you might not believe it, but if you keep telling yourself, at some point it's really hard to distinguish when when you've done it so often. It's really hard to distinguish between what's true and what's not, because you've done it, you've done it, you've carved it, you're carving that out. And you're telling yourself it enough times that it begins to feel true, and that's why that's why it gets really interesting. So, talk to us about this idea of the the superpower. How do we begin to unlock the superpower and move us in the direction that is just improves our self fulfillment, our you know, you talk about productivity, you talk about how teams perform, just 
the success that we want to have. Give us what is your what what what's the formula that that our listeners as they are listening say, hey, I want to I want to unlock my superpower. Where do I start? There's a there's a million different places. Once again, we could stop because it also depends on why. What is it you What is it you you wanting to achieve? Um, you may have come. Have you heard of um, Timothy Galway? He's got a book called uh, What's the book called? The Inner Game of The Inner Game of Work. And one of the things I love about Galway's work is he says that performance is it's like an equation. Performance is potential minus interference. So we're talking about two things here. We are talking about internal self-interference or self-talk, the kind of things we've just been talking about, or fears or self-doubt, the kind of interference we put in our own way. And then we'll bring that into the world of work and teams, the interference of, do we have a good manager? Have we got a manager that, you know, are there, um, are you working for a company you're proud of? Are there development opportunities where you work? Do you feel like your manager cares about you um, and has got your back? Do you feel like you're part of a team who've got your back? These are all different types of interference that gets in the way of you unlocking your potential. So I would always say where to start, work out what is that interference? Is it you or is it something external that you can maybe you know do something about differently? But for most of us, that interference starts with us. It starts with what we believe is possible, what we believe about the world, what we believe we can achieve, what, what we believe we can do. But you've got to know what you want to do. And that's another really interesting part of this puzzle because so many people know everything that they don't want out of life. They're not so sure about what they do want in out of life. And so I sometimes coach really you know, chief execs of big companies and they'll come to me because they just feel like they're stagnating or they're lost or they don't feel like they're performing as well as they used to be. And often the first question I'll ask them is, okay, well, what, what do you want to have happen? And they're like, well, I don't want this and I, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I don't want to see these results. I do. And I'll go, okay, you don't want those things. What do you want? And they're stuck. And then we have to spend the next part of the session helping people really understand what they really want. So where do I start? One, know what you really, really want. Two, work out what's the interference? What's getting in the way? Is it you or is it something external? And if it's you, if it's that self-talk, if it's that self-doubt, if it's the fear of the unknown, if it's you know anything that, that you are aware of, that your beliefs are stopping you, then, it's not about going, okay, why do I believe like that? Where's that come from? It's not about looking backwards. It's about looking forward. And then the best question to ask yourself is, what do I want to believe instead? Who do I want to be? Not, you know, not, it's sometimes this is not about, oh, I want a big, you know, a big house or a fancy car. It's about who do I want to be? When I, when I leave this world, what, What's the legacy I want to leave behind me? What would I want people to say at my funeral? Starting asking questions at identity level, setting goals at identity level. What kind of a person achieves an outcome like that? All of a sudden, you are unlocking your potential. And the reason why I call it as a, a superpower is because once that happens and once you kind of start believing, oh, hang on, I could, for example, we mentioned I'm going to um, embark on a PhD. I'll be I'll probably doing that, be doing that until I'm sixty because I'll be doing it part time. But I knew from a little girl, I knew that I would be a doctor one day. And yeah, maybe it's taken me a long, 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 long time to get there. But I have always known what kind of a person I want to be, and I I think I'm very congruent with that. Um, and and that has driven me. You know, I'm, it, I was blushing when Christian read out all of those credentials earlier but actually that's because I know who who I'm where I'm where I'm going I know what I'm aiming for I know what kind of a person is the kind of person that gets a PhD even at age 60 and that's why it's a superpower because it drives you in a way that other things just don't
So Lisa, just great, great stuff. You know, I, I just came back from Disneyland as, as Christian pointed out. And one of the rides that we went on, one of the very first rides was Alice in Wonderland. And you remember what the Cheshire, uh, Cheshire cat says to Alice when he's, you know, he's going through that forest. Where do you want to go? She says, well, I don't really know. Which is the same, you know, discussion you're having with these leaders. Then, she, then he says, well, it doesn't really matter in which direction you go. And so you, you have to know where you want to go, what you want to do, what you want to be. And I, you know, you brought up so many thoughts that I just, I want to just explore a couple of them. One of them uh, I do it with my coaching clients to your point is to find, you know, what is your purpose? Where do you want to, how do you want to be remembered is to do that end of life experience. You know, what, what do you want to say on your gravestone? What, what do you want people to have said about you to envision that, that end of life experience is something that I really, I think gets people focused on what uh, what they want to be remembered for. And sometimes I think we just go about life and we don't take the time to 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 think about those things. That's it's why it's it's interesting to me that so many business leaders are confused about what do I want to become? Where do I want to go? Yeah. So true. And you know you can even do that at an organization. So I work I work with a lot of founders and startup organizations as well as big, you know, multinational established organizations. And I'll say okay, Tell me, you know, describe to me who, you know, what kind of a company is this? Or and they, they tell me what they do and how they do it. And I'm and I'm really curious about who you are as a company. And that's another one that really plays with that blows people's mind. They're like, well, I don't know who we are as a company, but what and I'll really push, what's the identity of your company? So we can look at big companies like Apple. And you know, we, we it's it's a, it's very close to branding, if you like. So companies have identities. We talk quite often about values when it comes to organisations. But when you start to explore what's the personality of your company, the minute people start kind of almost metaphorically talking about the company as a person, it can be transformative to strategy. So this stuff about identity has massive implications, not just to, to us as individuals and business leaders, but in terms of how we think of our firms, our teams, our organizations, we can put, we can talk about them as identities and it unlocks so much rich, creative information that you can use and really take forward. So, so Lisa, what if our identity as a team is dysfunction? You talk about removing interference. Well, we started with removing the interference of uh, in our minds. Great. So let's say I've got that under control and then I'm part of a team that's creating interference for my productivity. If, you know, I work with an organization called uh, team coaching international and for decades, over three decades, they've been assessing teams worldwide and found that less than 12% of teams are high performing. So that means that's, that's a lot of teams out there that are not performing and there's a lot of interference. So what do I do if I'm stuck on a team like that? Because that seems like there's not a lot of teams for me to go to that are high performing to unleash my potential. Am I stuck? I would say not. I think it starts with open and honest conversations. Yeah. Because, and I hope I'm not going to bore you now with models and, you know, No, I love it. Like that's, that. that's why I'm yeah. asking you. <laughs> oh, great, great. So the, the, the model that immediately comes to mind that everybody knows is the Lencioni model, five dysfunctions of a team. There are a number of models, but once again, it's back to that. You need to work out where the interference is, you know, what, what's causing the dysfunction. And a lot of times that very first level, for example, on Lencioni is all about trust. It's about being able to be open and honest, be vulnerable to one another, to know that um, each other, you know, that you've got each other's back. That is such a fundamental starting point when it comes to teams. And to be honest with you, what, what we know as well is that it's one of the key areas when that is not in place, all of the other things to do with high-performing teams, they're built on that very core basis of trust and that knowing that you've got each other's back and you can be open and honest with each other. So I would say to that, you need to work out what, what is the dysfunction, what is the interference. Often there is more than one, so it's what's the root cause of it. And once you can work out what that is, 
there is so much stuff you can do to make a difference, but you've got to work out what it is first. All right, I've, I've got to I got to kind of follow on that and things that you said here earlier because I I find this fascinating. Uh, what you're talking about, the brain is there to prove us right, and so we search for that evidence, or we we the, the evidence comes in filtered. And I'm curious if that also happens in organizations that uh, the organizational brain, for lack of a better term, its culture. Uh, is set up in such a way that what comes in is naturally, I don't know if biased is the right term, but it's filtered to see things a certain way and it wants to prove itself white, which might mean also that it's potentially resistant to change. And so just as we can potentially change our own focus so that we are now seeing different we're seeing gray cars instead of white cars, uh, to use yeah. uh, Spencer's example. Can that also apply organizationally where we have this change of organizational mindset so that we're now, as an organization, seeing the gray cars instead of the white cars? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Because well, if we look at what culture is, we, are, we often talk about it as an iceberg, don't we? It's about how it's just the norms of how we are, how the, all of the unsaid things that, that happen within an organization and the vision, the mission, all of those kind of artifacts that we call it, that we see above the surface, like, like an iceberg. They're all of the things that are obvious, but it's all of the things that are unsaid, just the norms, the way that it is around here, that's unsaid. And to change that, it's changing the unsaid, making the, you know, making it explicit having those conversations about actually how is it what why you know we, we we've recruited somebody because we wanted fresh thinking and they've come in and actually within so many weeks months they're just being the same as everybody else why and how does that happen and you'll tend to find it's because there is something in your culture that stifles innovation you'll have processes or policies or managers um, who are risk averse, whatever it is. It's once again, it's very similar to what I said before. You've got to hold that mirror up. You've got to be able to talk about the things that you don't talk about. It's very similar to back to the dysfunctions of a team, starting with trust, those open and honest conversations. You don't have those conversations. You don't realize all of the things that we don't see. We don't, you know, the brain is a fantastic thing. What it does is it, it, creates strategies so it, it uses energy in the most efficient way so it so it can switch off and just habitually behave in a way without having to put too much energy into any situation working out what it is you need to do it just forms habits and it's a really efficient way of using energy organizations are exactly the same that's how culture is formed and, and we've got to just stop and hold that mirror up have those conversations to go what in what ways are we just doing this because it's the way we've always done it. And how can we stop and understand that stuff? Because if it's not useful to us, we can then change it. But if we don't help, we don't hold that mirror, if we don't have the conversation, we're never gonna be able to change it. All right, well, I'm gonna keep going here, Spencer, because I'm finding this fascinating. So, so if I understand correctly, what you're saying, Lisa, is really the foundation is trust and, as an organization or as a leader, you've got to make sure that people have a safe space or they feel safe in actually being vulnerable. And they probably haven't shared what they really want to share because they haven't felt safe. So what are some steps that you can take as a leader of a team or as a leader of an organization to get people to open up? Because it's not easy. You know, you worry uh, as a team member, well, is this going to be held against me? And uh, is this going to, you know, if I share what I'm really thinking, is it going to limit my opportunities for progress or is it going to make my life more miserable? So I'd rather just li live with the way things are. I don't want to, I don't want to step out of my comfort zone, even if my comfort zone is uncomfortable because yeah. the unknown is more uncomfortable. So what can I do as a leader to, 
to help my team members, to help my organization overcome those fears and really promote this holding up of the mirror and this honest conversation that you're recommending. Yeah, you've got to start with you. Um, maybe one of you two can help me. Who is a famous saying, who said it again? Um, be the be the change you want to see in this world. My mind's gone blank. I can't, do either of you know who said yeah, that? It, oh, it's, uh... was it, 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 no, it was, I know this. Was I've it, used this quote. Was it, was it Mandela that said that? I, no, I, I, it, I, no uh, I, who was it that said that? It is. It, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, Gandhi. Oh, well, Gandhi, yeah. Be Gandhi, the change. yes. Okay, yeah. Be, you know, be the change you want to see in this world. Yeah. And that's what I say to leaders all of the time. It starts with you. You've got to model it. You know, it's the same as when, you've, when you're a parent and you've got children. You know, we, you know, we'll often say, do as I say, not as I do, <laughs> you know, type thing. Well, no, we've got to, I've got to show you that I'm going to take the first steps. I'm going to be the brave one. I'm going to come out of my comfort zone and I'm going to do it first. And when you watch me being vulnerable, when you see how it's done, then you're more likely to get your team members to start to do that too. So my best, I always say, you start with you. You know, this is where emotionally intelligent leaders are absolutely critical. Managers, who you hire as managers and leaders, are the, it's one of the most important decisions that a company can make because your managers have the biggest impact on the, the people around them, the biggest impact on stress, retention, performance, motivation. People leave, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave teams, they leave people, they leave ultimately, often, bad managers. So if you want... That was that would they do leave bad managers. That was just a, that was a mic drop drop moment. But uh, so, but I the, guess my point of answer is you can't you can't expect others to do what you're not doing yourself. You must start with you. Yeah, true. Yeah, but that that's still I, I'm I'm still perplexed at why then so few teams are high performing. Yes. We have been talking about emotional intelligence for over 30 years. We've been talking, yeah. Lencioni has been talking about the dysfunctions of a team forever. We've been talking about the importance of, uh, of our thoughts for so long. Why then do we continue to, to struggle? And yes, companies need to hire more emotionally aware leaders. But typically what I see who they're promoting is just the person who's best at the job. Well, that's a very yeah. different role than managing people doing the job and managing people are, are two different skill sets yeah. and uh, so why why does that persist I'm, I'm sorry i'm just being uh, uh incredulous and yet agreeing with you in every way i'm just like so oh i i agree absolutely so when we think about it we we've taught we've we've used this term soft skills for years so Stop. i agree with what you're saying <laughs> yeah yeah we call them soft skills so what's the what's the connotation to that is they're secondary they're not they're light and fluffy and fluffy. squishy yeah, yeah. exactly so we focused on technical ability technical competencies um and that's been our focus for years i mean look at it look at even the education system that's all built on iq you know um and you know, these things are, they are important, but they're, they're such a small part of the story. And we have been talking about emotional intelligence for a lot of years now. But now what's really interesting is we've not, we've got the psychology side of it. We're now able to back it up with a lot more robust neuroscience because we're able to use like MFRIs and things like that to see brain imagery and know the, the different impact that words, that different ways in which we phrase things. This stuff's not soft, fluffy stuff. This stuff actually physically affects our bodies, or not just our thoughts, but they, they have it has impacts on our physical bodies and our well-being, and it releases different types of um, endorphins and all different kind of hormones in our body. So what we know is in the world of work, where we focused in on these technical skills because we've given these fluffy skills not much importance 
we're now have we have much more robust science that says hang on a minute this so-called soft fluffy stuff actually underpins quite often your ability to be able to to use the fantastic technical skills you have in a range of contexts getting the best out of yourselves and getting the best out of your others and get, getting the best out of others so the different types of sciences are developing to be able to to show that this is not just soft and fluffy stuff this stuff is critical and i think we are seeing a shift and a move in that direction as well So Lisa, I'm wondering if you can kind of share some anecdotal evidence or just stories from what you have seen, the work that you've done with individuals or organizations, how it's been able to change themselves, how they've been able to change themselves without divulging confidential information, of course, but, but you know, examples that you have in your own experience of seeing people making these changes, whether it's individuals or teams. Yeah. Um... I guess, okay, let me start, let me start with a, years ago, I used to work in the homelessness sector for young people. And this stuff, when we're, so yes, we're talking about in the world of work, and it's, it's really important for all of us as, as leaders, and, and these things, of course, they're absolutely critical. But this stuff is so powerful, it can be absolutely game changing for people. It's one of the reasons why, you know, you know, I say it's a bit like having a superpower. This stuff's either your kryptonite or, or it's your superpower. And it was really interesting. I do remember this one time working with a young woman. Um, I mean, we worked at the time with people aged 16 to 21. I think she just had a, I think she was, I can't remember exactly how old she was. Um, she wasn't 21 yet. And I think she'd had a third child removed. Um, and, you know, the, the, there had been lots of interventions, lots of ways. I mean, she'd had a, an absolutely awful upbringing. She'd been brought up in care. She'd been, she'd had, she'd suffered an awful lot of abuse as a child. And we know how these, you know, quite often how, you know, these things are end up repeating themselves. And, you know, this was just a young woman who'd had a really, really difficult time. And she was just stuck in not knowing, you know, that this cycle of, you know, poverty and putting ourselves in, putting herself in really risky situations. Social workers had worked with her. There'd been so many different interventions to try and help this young woman break out of this, this cycle of behavior that she was in. And we did a piece of work there. And this is just an example. It's, you know, this, I, I use, I do this type of work with in all different settings where actually what we uncovered underneath by the when we asked a, a series of questions about what was important to her and how would she describe herself as a person what what we ascertained is she had such a negative self-image of herself her identity was it was I, I remember thinking you know in that line of work as i say this is years ago you hear the most awful stories kind of they still move you, but you're still, you know, you're still able to just have normal conversations. My goodness, on this occasion, me and a colleague, you know, we just couldn't stop the tears from falling because we it was these the ways in which she viewed herself. And it wasn't self-deprecating. You know, she wasn't trying to do that. This was real. She really believed she was a bad mother. Her kids were better off without. It was absolutely awful. And so we asked her to flip it. And she was like, well, I can't because I'm not that person. And I'm like, okay, but let's just imagine we're playing a game. Let's just imagine. I want you to think about what kind of a, per what, what, what is it that you want to have happening? She says, I, I know I can't have my children, but I just want to be able um, to have better relationships. So she did have some access to the youngest one. I just want to be able to be there for her. And I want to be able to, to sh I don't want her to go through the same life as I did. And, you know, like I say, the social workers, they've been trying years to, to make the affect these kind of changes in it. What we often do is we put the intervention in at behavior level. We try and get people to change their behaviors. 
But at the, at the end of the day, what's driving those behaviors is what we think about ourselves at what we call identity level. So we got her to, to come up with a whole load of different. So for I said to her, so what kind of a person is it the kind of person who is able to see their daughter on a regular basis and be a really good role model? And she couldn't see it for herself, but she said, you know, that's a kind of person who um, it's the kind of person who would take care of themselves. It's the kind of person who wouldn't hang around with people who were a bad influence. It's the kind of person who was healthy and didn't drink alcohol. And we just wrote all these down. And we were able to get her to go, okay, so instead of setting some goals of, um, you know, cut down on your alcohol or try and go to college or whatever it might be, we said, right, your goal is to be the kind of person who takes care of themselves. What does that look like? And she ended up creating this plan. She just, once we'd started, she just rolled on, on her own, coming up with all of these things. And you just seen it. You, she changed there and then in that moment. I don't mean like she changed all her behaviors. I mean, you could see a spirit's lift. You could see hope. You could see possibility where before there was none, there was no belief she could be any different to the way that she thinks she always she always was. And the minute she had this alternative, this, this different view of herself and the belief that that was possible, the, the change in, in how she felt and the, the driver to want to change completely changed because for the first time in her short life, albeit for the first time, she believed it was possible to be somebody that she always thought she she wasn't now when you see like yes i've done work like that with ceos and I, that that's the one that sticks probably most in my mind because that, that young woman actually did she you know she she still had various troubles in her life but she actually did have it she was able to maintain that relationship with the child on a on a fairly regular basis Whereas at that point, it was debatable whether or not the, the social services were going to even cut that off. So this stuff, that's why it's a superpower. It's why it's your kryptonite. Because though it was those very self-identity that the way of seeing herself that was driving those negative behaviors. And the way, the, the minute she was able to see herself as different, that's when it became a superpower. That's what, that's all she focused on. She, you know, becoming the person that she wanted to be rather than, you know, working it at behavior level, it changed everything for her. And that, that, that's a story that sticks with me and it probably always will. Well, that's, thank you so much for sharing that. That is uh, such a perfect story for this, this concept. And it is really about unlocking the potential of this individual. It's about unlocking my potential, your potential, how we think and how we show up on teams, removing those, the, really those uh, interferences is the word that you used to our own success and, and getting out of our own way, getting out of our, our team's way to, uh, and, and also you talked about taking that same uh, uh, creation of identity for ourselves and applying that to organizations and teams and the same yeah. principles can be applied there. So great stuff, uh, Lisa. Just really, really appreciate that. Actually, Spencer, for me, there's, a, there's another point within this is when we work with managers, how often do managers believe that their team members can or can't do something? All the What's time. The and and yeah. so and when I'm talking to them, it's like, can you fix this person? And, and I, Lisa, I always start with, well, what about you as part of the problem that you're part of the problem? And, yeah. and it has to start with the leader. May, are there problems with your direct reports? Absolutely. But a lot of the times you're creating them. I mean, as you yeah. said earlier, people don't join our organizations to fail or to, to flounder. They, they, they're excited. They want to bring their energy. And many times they adapt the the culture that uh, of the team and that you, you were talking exactly that there's so many more things I want to talk about uh, Christian. And, um, I, I, I just, I, I struggled with whether I was going to say this. Hopefully, hopefully it's not the wrong thing. One of the thing that I, one of the reasons why I think this, this work is going to be 
so much more needed in the future, uh, Lisa and, and Christian, is technology is actually, you know, taking on more of the technical stuff. And we were thinking, okay, well, that's going to free up our, our, uh, you know, emotional mind space, our, our, uh, to, to be able to work on the, our emotional intelligence. But I, I find the opposite is happening. I, I mm. saw a, a, an engineer in the airport just a couple of years ago. And I, here, here's what the, I don't know if you can see it. Um, here's what the, the t-shirt said. <laughs> yes, I love that. It says, for those who are listening, engineer, I try to make things idiot-proof, but I keep making better idiots. And I wonder, uh, Lisa and Christian, is if our reliance more and more on technology is actually reducing our superpowers and making us lazy. I mean, we what you're talking about takes some effort. It takes some work. It takes looking in the mirror, which is very, very uncomfortable. And so hopefully we are uh, taking the time to, to work on us and work with somebody like you that can really help uh, people get past the, their own self-limiting beliefs. Anyway. Yeah. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And the other thing we're doing, especially in the world of HR and learning and development, organizational development, we're adding complexity. We're adding systems and whether it's like you say, like computer systems to do performance management, or we're at, we're adding, you know, like we're, we're putting in complex performance management systems, whether they be paper, we're, we're adding complexity all of the time. And really what we need to be doing is stripping it away, stripping it back, keeping it simple. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We need to keep it simple and take it right back to the core and back at the core is relationships back to that, that conversation Trust we had about that you talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's relationships, it's people, systems, technology, that's never going to be able to do that for us. Yeah, it can be an enabler, but it's never going, you know, we need, we need to get back to the core and that's relationships, it's people. Oh, sorry, Christian, <laughs> is that me? Did I do that? No, I'm talking, so I can't hear you, Christian. Sorry. It's my fault. I <laughs> put myself on mute because there was some background noise and I didn't want that to interfere with things. And so I muted myself. So I'm sorry. Here I am. What an amateur. Okay. Well, shoot, Lisa, it's been a fantastic 45 minutes of conversation with you today. We could, I, I could, we could go for hours. I, I, I'm finding this just unbelievable. I, I've learned so much uh, in our brief time. But if people want to learn more about what you can do to help them reach their potential and uh, remove these self-limiting beliefs and realize their superpower, what's the best way for them to reach out and connect with you? I would, I mean, by all means, email me, but connect with me on LinkedIn um, and just fire away some questions. Uh, the, we're talking about keeping it simple and removing complexity. And that's, people assume this thing's really hard. I think both of you at some point was like, well, how do you do that? Does it take years? Actually, no, it's the most simple thing we can do. It's one of the smallest things we can do that has the biggest impact. So if anybody's got any questions and they wanna ask me, please just fire me a message. You'll be surprised how simple this stuff is, but how life-changing it can be. Oh my gosh, Christian, I gotta say, she, uh, Lisa actually, spoke with a friend or a mutual friend of ours at, to help her with a situation that she'd been dealing with for years and, and just was able to help her get out of and, and solve the problem. I don't want to say what it was because I don't want anybody to know who, who it is, but it's a dear friend who's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And you did that very quick order. When I, you, all three of us got to speak on the stage in Cyprus though, you uh, Christian were were virtual. Don't you remember Lisa, the entire audience was mesmerized for his, I said that to Christian. Yeah, it was silence. That's right. They hear a pin drop because they were hanging on Christian's every word. It was every amazing. word. But I tell you, Lisa is such a brilliant speaker. She reached out to me and just to make sure we were providing the best experience for our uh, our hosts and meeting planners. 
And one of the things I did in, in doing research on Lisa before I, I really knew her is went and watched her, her TEDx talk. And she was like, oh, that, that she actually was in the audience of a TEDx presentation. And one of the speakers didn't show up and they totally cold called her and said, hey, can you come up on the stage and present? Christian, I don't know. I, I don't think I could do that. And she got up and I watched this TED talk and it was absolutely brilliant. Well, wow. send the money in the post or your kind words, Spencer. But, yeah. yeah, it was really great. So, so grateful to, to have you. Sorry, Chris, oh, I just wanted to slobber a little bit more. <laughs> uh, well, likewise, uh, Spencer, uh, you've been doing work with teams for decades as well. And if people want to learn more about how you're helping teams uh achieve their potential and become high performing teams, what's the best way for them to connect with you? LinkedIn is, is great. Reach out to me. I I'm connecting with people there all the time. Message me on LinkedIn, Spencer Horn or Altium leadership.com. A L T I U M leadership.com. Christian, you know what? Sorry for hogging so much of the time today, but you know, Christian is, is, uh, as we said, somebody that when he starts to talk, people listen. How can how can they listen to you more and get a hold of you? Well, I don't talk a lot, <laughs> but uh, I am grateful and and welcome to to speak you know, an opportunity to speak with anyone. If you've got any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at uh, Christian Napier on LinkedIn. Just look up Christian Napier; you'll find me there, and that's probably the easiest way. Wow, this has been a, a, a fascinating uh, conversation. Thank you so much, Lisa, for taking the time to enlighten us. And uh, you, you've really changed uh, things for me, even in this short hour. Listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us as well. And please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon.